Okay, we just hit time, so we can go ahead and get started. Let's open up with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we contemplate the parables of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray that you would generously pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might be enlightened to be hearers of your word and doers also, that your word might be fruitful within us and bear much fruit unto eternal life and unto the blessing of all your people. We pray your continued blessing upon your church here on earth. May she continue to expand and grow and deepen her faith, her hope, and her love, all directed toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so having concluded Mark chapter 4, which is Mark's introduction to the parables. And again, we saw in Mark how foundational it is. It is the introduction in Mark to Jesus' preaching and the substance thereof. But now here, as we turn to Matthew 13, we're going to find a parallel section. So Matthew and Mark showing a great deal of similarity But Matthew is structured in a totally different way than Mark's gospel, of course. The introduction to Jesus' teaching in Matthew's gospel is rather the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5. But to give you an even better overview and sense for the makeup of the gospel of Matthew, uh, scholars have been able to determine a fivefold organizational structure in Matthew— based around these large discourses of our Lord. So there are five of these discourses. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of those discourses. For lack of a better word, it's simply where Jesus speaks at great length. And that speech really has to do with a specific occasion or topic. So the Sermon on the Mount stretches from chapters 5 through chapter 7. That's the first discourse. It's not until chapter 10 that we hit the next discourse, and that's the mission of the church. You can think of the words he speaks to uh, the 12 and, and his sending out. Then in chapter 13, you have the third discourse. That's what we'll be looking at tonight and in the next week or two. And this third discourse has to do with the parables, how to understand the parables. And one of the things we're going to see Matthew really emphasize, even though, of course, it's present in Mark as well. We're going to see Matthew really emphasize this theme of hiddenness. Whereas Mark, in Mark, it's so obviously and evidently about the word. Uh, we're going to see the word take on still a major theme in Matthew 13, but along with some other major themes all kind of like spokes around the hub, the hub being this idea of hiddenness and revelation. Okay, so that's the third discourse in Matthew of five. Now, the fourth discourse is not until the 18th chapter of Matthew, and that's largely on the church. You'll remember, you know, you don't want to have somebody do Matthew 18 against you. (laughs) But it has to do, of course, with more than that. Um, the lost sheep is found there. So we'll have opportunity to jump into uh, the fourth discourse, Matthew 18, and take a look at what Jesus has to say about the church and, and church discipline, for lack of a better word, even though that kind of has a negative connotation in our minds. It doesn't in our Lord's uh, 
own teaching. All right, and then fifth, last but not least, chapters 23 through 25 form the last discourse, the fifth discourse, and that could largely be under the heading of judgment. You can think of the parables of judgment. We're going to hit some of those. Um, The ten virgins, the goats and the sheep being separated. Uh, So we'll have opportunity to look at that discourse somewhat as well. But these five discourses then give you a sense of how Matthew is structured and the structured around these larger teaching sections of Jesus. And so, um, interestingly, if you take those five, the center one is these parables, 13. And in fact, uh, within chapter 13, this center discourse, if you if you were to, um, you know, there are many different ways in terms of uh, literary technique of, of centering something. You could say, in some respects, the heart of the teaching of Jesus in Matthew is this, is what was hidden now being revealed to the disciples and being revealed evermore so that those who have will, re- will have still more, while those who reject even what they have will be taken away. So that's uh, by way of introduction. If there's any questions or comments at this point, I'm happy to take them. Again, a reminder to you guys online, thank you all for joining us. We've got quite the online crew tonight, uh, but feel free to uh, do something visual or audible to get my attention if you do have a comment or question to add. Okay, so as we look at 13 then, uh, you'll note that it begins in the same way as Mark 4 with the parable of the sower. And we're not we're going to do our best to not cover uh, ground we've already covered. So we're going to skip over the sower with the different kinds of soils. And we will take a look at, cha- at chapter 13, verse 10 and following. Mark has a smaller, shorter version of this. And uh, you'll see some nuances here in the way that Matthew records it. So this would be the more thorough treatment of the two in regard to the purpose of the parables. So at verse 10, then the disciples came and said to him, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them to you. Again, this is plural. It has been given. Notice that language. It's not as if you could ascertain it or as if you've merited it. But to you, it has been given. So it is, oh, we're already in a gospel frame, so to speak. To know the musteria, the secrets or mysteries. And again, I much prefer that language of mystery simply because that translates all across the board in our understanding of Christianity. Christianity is a mystery and all of the articles of faith are mysteries. Again, just to very briefly define that. It's, it's not as if we can't know anything. That's not what we, it's a mystery. I, I don't know anything about this. That's not the point. That would be to get it entirely wrong. But a mystery is you can only know that which is revealed to you. And then you can continue via the continuous revelation. You can t- continue to learn more and more without ever plumbing its depths, without ever fully comprehending it. That's a nature of a mystery. So one of the ways that you can you can kind of test yourself and tell how well you know any given article of the faith is if you're able to hold together the two biblical teachings 
that it's that really, frankly, rationally don't make any sense to hold together. So really low-hanging fruit, especially since we're here in Advent with uh, the incarnation in view, Christmas in view, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he knows all things and yet grows in wisdom and stature. This is incomprehensible. So that would be a really simple grasp of how you can know the mystery, you can know the content, but you can't ever fully comprehend it, wrap your mind around it, etc. And you can continue to grow and deepen your understanding of these realities. And you could bring them into ever greater tension, if you like, as well, as you develop along in your understanding of the mystery of this particular article of the faith, namely Christology or the ontology of our Lord, if, if we could use that term. Okay, and then that that progresses to any article of the faith. Uh, there are paradoxical um, ways in which the scripture speaks, and you don't really thoroughly know the article until you know both sides of that coin. Please. I was going to say that, you know, that's consistent with, we read the same scripture at different points in time, it has different effect on you, mm. different meaning, different truths come out. So that's the beauty, I guess, that's the plumbing the depth of these of the mystery mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh yeah just i'm sorry i wanted to make just one comment in regard to barry and i was having a hard time swallowing my pepsi there sorry but yeah barry you're exactly right that the scriptures are the the living voice of the living lord and so i mean it's kind of a I don't intend for it to be a strange way of speaking, but it's as much the case that the scriptures read you as you read the scriptures. It's as much the case that you are, uh, that God is encountering you, that Christ, the living Christ is encountering you as if you're just doing the action and reading and all of this. In fact, Matthew's gospel is specifically designed that way. Arguably, um, arguably all the gospels are, but in particular, Matthew's gospel is designed to give you an encounter with the living Lord. It, it is often said to be the first catechism of the church, and it is designed in such a way that you are introduced to Jesus and led along the path with the disciples, seeing what he did and reacting with them as you go along. Okay, please, Scott, did you have a... Oh, yes. Um, so... When this has been given to them, does he mean, or maybe we don't know, like he explained to them on the side or other stuff that's actually in the Bible that he said to them, or like they had a revelation because of the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe. Let me let me answer, and then we'll see if uh, it does make sense. So, with um, with Matthew in particular, you want to pay really a close close attention to the language he uses um, when he's referring to who Jesus is speaking to or who is speaking to Jesus. And one of the maybe the most important aspect of that is is his use of disciples. And that is the case here, too. So then the disciples came and said to him. And so when Jesus says to you, it's specifically to the disciples, those whom the Father has called to Christ, those whom the Father has given faith. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
So already Jesus is seeing their faith and seeing that God has worked this. God has made them his disciples. Thus, he also says to you, it has been given to know the mysteries or secrets of the kingdom. Okay. So by virtue of the fact that you believe in my name, that didn't come from you, that came from my father. By virtue of your belief, by virtue of your discipleship to you, it has been given to know the mysteries. Does that kind of answer your question? So it's part and parcel of this gracious activity, which in Matthew can even take on some scandalous parts where Jesus thanks the father, for example, that he has hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little babes. So that deepens, I mean, it's tangential to our conversation of the, of the hiddenness, that theme. But that, that is a theme, and a really intriguing, uh, an enchanting theme about Matthew's gospel is this idea of hiddenness and the Father's revelation and man's rejection of that revelation. Uh, and the Father, to those whom who receive it, he gives more, and to those who reject it, even what they have is taken away. So again, we'll see Jesus himself spell that out for us, but that's the dynamic. Good? Very okay? Yeah, please, now, please. I feel like mysteries rather than secrets, and the reason for that is, you know, like secrets, it's like, oh, there's a group of secret knowledge or something, and mm-hmm. I always thought, like, well, everything, there's no secret, everything's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Like, everything we believe is right here, mm-hmm. so I kind of like that. Coming up in the epistle reading for Gaudete, the third Sunday in Advent, this next Sunday, is Paul's statement. Um, let let a man uh, consider us or account us to be stewards of the mysterion, the mysteries of God. And so it's bigger than just like, hey, the Lord's Supper and baptism, but it's stewards of, and, and what is a steward? Like a house servant. We're going to actually see Paul's language resonate with our Lord's language at the end of Matthew 13, where he calls them oikodespotes. Uh, rulers of the house or heads of the house, um, that they're stewards or householders over the mysteries, uh, over the mysteries of God that is given to understand them and given to reveal them. Yeah, please. Since, since God brought it up, why is, why is it translated that way as mysteries in Acts, First Corinthians, and and secrets here? Arbitrary. Yeah, it is. It's one of the frustrating things about English. The English is really good. I don't want to discourage anyone. And it is one of the benefits of reading multiple English translations, or sometimes you'll see those New Testament in parallel English translations. Those aren't a waste of time. They can really give you a good sense of the semantic domain. They are second to knowing and being able to read the original language. It's just unavoidable. But that's, I mean, that's true for the scriptures. That's true for anything you read. You know, any translation you read, there's going to be a translator making certain decisions. Yeah, can you put a better construction on the word secrets? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think with any word, you can inject it with the right meaning, you know, to a certain degree, if it'll hold it at least. And so you can do that with secrets, just understand it correctly. Um yeah, but but mystery mystery has that advantage to it, I think, and yeah, and you know, I would just say to be to try to be charitable. Words come in season and out of season too, 
for example, in our liturgy, we changed from the Holy Ghost to the Holy Spirit. And that was a move because people at the time thought that ghost gave a false impression and spirit would be better. Now we live in times where no one's religious and everyone's spiritual, and maybe it's time to go back to ghost. <laughs> if nothing else, for the cultural shock value, right? Of hey, you don't you don't know everything you think you know about Christianity. So so that's another part to be charitable. Is words themselves just culturally come in and out of season, and um, I think we have to just kind of adapt and move along with it. Yeah. But but mystery is 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 definitely to be prefer, preferred, and mystery also uh, fits nicely with this idea of hiddenness that we're gonna we're gonna see really come to fore here in Matthew thirteen. Okay, so just picking back up at verse eleven with the red letters to you, it has been given to know the mysteria, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Another fun thing is almost always in Matthew's gospel, heaven is plural, uranum, the heavens. And when he refers to the birds, it's in the singular, the birds of the heaven. This is likely uh, the way that is understood. And this helps you remember St. Paul says, um, I knew a man who ascended to the third heaven. And you think, okay, well, he got up to heaven and then took an elevator up three floors. And what's on the fourth floor? He didn't have the right card, you know. Um, no, this is the first heaven would be where the birds fly, the atmosphere, so to speak. The second heaven would be where the planets move and the stars don't, but exist, at least visually speaking from Earth. And then um, the third heaven would be the domain and abode of God, so that Paul got swept up there and got swept up where John and his revelation gets swept up. That's the third heaven. So you have the heavens, and it makes a lot of sense to... Uh, so uh, remember, Satan is called the prince of the air, and that that puts him indescriptly between heaven and earth, or the third heaven and earth. And that's right. That's that's where he is. He's he's there, influencing on earth. He's been cast down to the domain of earth proper, Revelation twelve, but he is trying to interpose himself between heaven and earth. And to stand so that heaven does not permeate earth and nor do we go into heaven. That's his role as the prince of the power of the air, if you remember that. I think that's Ephesians, isn't it? I think so. Remember. Okay. I'll be that as it may. That's a curiosity and, and part of Matthew's uh, gospel that, again, is an editorial choice to kind of make that singular. So the... Mysteria or secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, who is the them? Those who are not my disciples. Is that unbelievers? Or is yeah. It- yeah, it is. It's right at this point. I mean, technically speaking, okay, uh, remember the two lenses. We have the first lens that's happening at roughly 30 AD, where Jesus is literally sitting in the boat in this lake. And what you really have is the crowds and the disciples. The crowds have not accepted him yet for who he is. They don't understand. Jesus sees his, in his disciples faith that has been given to them by the Father. Now, it's not a perfect faith. It's not a complete faith. Um, and many times it's a faith that's utterly lacking. And 
and many times it's just as unbelief even still. So it's complicated in that regard. But right now, the distinction at that first level, the historic level, is the crowd, that's the them, and the disciples. Okay. But now Matthew is writing this, say, 10, 15 years later, whatever it is. I don't want to get into that argument. But, okay, now that's the secondary lens. Who is the they and the them 10 years later as the church has been established and has begun to spread? Now it's the disciples, the believers, and the crowd, those who reject the unbelievers. So I think, in other words, I think that either way you read this, you you kind of, you, you get nuanced differences, but it would not be wrong in the least to say disciples and unbelievers are what's in view here. Is it back to binary we talked about a few weeks ago in our other studies? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is binary. And it, and it's really there's a binary reality all the way through. There's just more mystery with what because what you have is a development um, from those. You have a bunch of Jewish people who are waiting for the Messiah. In that sense, they're Christians. But the idea that Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's son, is the Messiah, that takes time. And you see a kind of transition there, and you really, frankly, see, no pun intended, but a kind of mystery in regard to how people come to believe that Jesus is this Christ. And it's a process, and you see that process through the Gospels. And the Gospel authors uh, have their own agendas in depicting the disciples, sometimes as more believing, sometimes as less. And they're doing that for their own per- theological purposes and emphases. But one thing then that is that is uh, clear is those who are baptized. So when Jesus is crucified and risen, when he meets with the disciples and tells them to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them, now they are disciples that believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's where things become extremely white and black and extremely binary. Now they are in principle all the way through. It's just a little messier. They believe in Christ. They believe in Christ. They're just not certain that Jesus is the Christ. You see the slight room for gray. Okay, even though in principle it's it's binary all the way through. Okay, so again, that you have the disciples and the them being the crowd, or the believers and the unbelievers. Um, to you it has been given, to you the disciples, to know the mysteries of heaven. To them it has not been given. Verse 12, for to the one who has, more will be given. Again, note the language of givenness echoing here. To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, which actually means like more than he knows what to do with. That <laughs> would be the living roadie translation. And abundant, the cup runneth over. Yeah, that's the point. All right. But, conjunction there, from the one who has not, namely these crowds or unbelievers or those who are looking to Jesus for something other than their salvation, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Now, you'll notice a difference between Matthew and Mark right at this point. Matthew just a little sharper with his focus. 
This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. Now, it remains a mystery. Why? That'll be answered in a minute, okay? But for now, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Seeing, hearing, and understanding are all missing. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Now, Jesus' ministry at this point is largely to the Jews. And, of course, there are some Gentiles along the way. And this is just an important thing to realize and to kind of wrap our minds around. Because at that first focal point of the history, who is the them? Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, and there are those who hear but don't understand and see but don't perceive, their heart has grown dull, and these are Hebrews, these are Jews, okay? That's Isaiah's context. He's talking about the apostates within Israel. Does that make sense? So narrowly speaking, then you can see in the historic frame of Jesus sitting beside that lake, what he's talking about isn't quite so broad as believers on believers, but is more narrowly focused to the Jews that receive him, the disciples, and those that do not, the crowds, who are predominantly Jewish at this point. Thus, he sees it as a fulfillment of what Isaiah is saying, that my own people won't see, my own people won't hear, my own people won't understand. You got that beautiful reminder in the nativity, uh, the creche, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? What's the little nativity? Is it just called a nativity? The nativity scene? But there's some word I'm looking for that I can't find. Sorry about that. But yeah, in the, the little nativity scenes, you almost always have, okay, you've got sheep there, but what other two animals show up? Yeah, the donkey and the ox is the key. The camel shows up anachronistically, of course, but with the theological import that he's there for the Gentiles. So I'm not opposed to that, even if it's not historically accurate. Good art doesn't have to be to communicate the truth. Okay. Uh, but yeah, always the, the ox and the ass. And why? Because that's Isaiah's prophecy that the ox and the ass know their master, but my people does not. Okay. Which is, quite, which is actually quite the devastating salvo of law. You're dumber than a donkey. You're more stubborn than an ass. I could go up. When you read Isaiah, he talks at the light to the Gentiles. That's why he's... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, Isaiah, Isaiah certainly has in his scope and in his view salvation of the gentiles in fact we saw that just in this last epistle romans 15 where he's got that uh in view the whole old testament is that way but in terms of the concrete quotation of isaiah 9 and, and we could we could flip back and look at it if you like um it's really talking about god uh this comes from isaiah 6 that's where we want to go and you remember isaiah 6 is the vision of the seraphim that he has and they're crying out, holy, 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 from which we get our sanctus, the Lord's mm-hmm. Supper. And this is the commissioning of Isaiah 
who to his credit says, here am I, send me. He's one of the willing prophets. Not all of the prophets are willing. They all fall on a spectrum somewhere. Isaiah receives this vision. He complains that he is a man of unclean lips with a people of unclean lips. And so Christ cleanses his lips with the coal that comes from the altar. And then, uh, so if you're in Isaiah 6, just just note um, at verse 1, you'll see the heading, something to the effect of Isaiah's vision of the Lord. And that's what I was talking about, the seraphim and all of this. And then by the time you get to verse 8, it transitions into the commissioning of Isaiah. And this right off the bat is is where we find our Lord's quotation. So Isaiah 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. You can think of the opposite end of the prophetic spectrum being Jonah heading the other way. And he said, go and say to this people. Now, who is the Lord referring to when he says this people? He's referring to his own people, the the Hebrews. Keep on. Yeah, please. But God has to do all the work. Okay. First of all, when you speak to Jonah and, and Isaiah, I mean, what gives Isaiah the courage to say, oh, send me? I mean, nothing personal, but God's telling you to do something. And especially some of the requests, you know, you're going to be sawed in half with a wooden saw. I'm not really. Yeah. Isaiah's a stud. I mean, he's a spiritual champion. He's, yeah. a, he's a horse. That's all there is to it. You, I mean, you know. He's, a, he's an amazing spiritual athlete. And I, and I would say in context, he's just, um, he's just had a seraphim touch to his lips a coal from the altar and cleanse him of all his sins. It wasn't a painful experience. It was a cleansing experience. He's been completely set free from his sins. And this God whom he's seen is now commissioning him to go. So he's on fire for it. He's all about it. It's commendable. I mean, I I wish that I had quite that excitement. I don't. I probably fall a little little further away from the spectrum, um, you know, than Isaiah. But yeah, I, we have to give credit where credit's due. And that's um, the Old Testament's filled with sinners. And every single saint in the Old Testament is a sinner. But really and truly, these men are champions of the faith. I mean, that's how the that's how the church has viewed them for two thousand years. Only only recently has it become in vogue to see them as all like sort of like these scoundrels that God worked through despite them. That's uh, not a very good reading, and it's not a good reading, especially if you want to read it the way the ch- the church for two thousand years has read it. Guys like Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, at least in degree, Isaiah. Ezekiel, I mean, these guys are these guys are studs. They put it on the line and they face stuff that most of us won't face. And they're just complete champions of the faith. They're they're to be held up. That's the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews encourages us with and says, Hey, this is your family. This is your hall of fame here. So be champions, you know, of the faith in that regard. All right. Well, to the point, here I am, send me verse nine. And he said, go and say to this people, so this is Yahweh's covenant people who have rebelled against him. Remember Isaiah's writing, in Isaiah's lifetime, the judgment of God's going to fall upon the 10 northern kingdoms in 722 
by the Assyrians. And shortly after his life, uh, Babylon is going to come down and crush the temple in Jerusalem and exile the remainder of the people. So God's about had it with his people. And that's why he sends Isaiah to say, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And then curiously, make the heart of this people dull. And that's going to be the language of fattened, thickened, calloused, okay, imperceptible. So uh, dull. And their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Okay. Now, Isaiah probably has a little change of heart. Here I am, send me in verse 8. Look at verse 11, because it's a complaint. (laughs) Then I said, how long, O Lord? So go do this. And he says, how long, O Lord? And he said that as the Lord said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. (laughs) Beautiful Christological reference. Okay, so he's given this message of judgment to the people. And the Lord likens his ministry. Why? Well, look at the parallel. The same way God is speaking through his prophet to his people. Now God is speaking through his son to his people. And largely his people are not receiving him. Are not the crowd is not believing that this is Yahweh in the flesh, that this is the Son of God. Okay. So that really gives us a proper first focal point understanding of what's going on as Jesus literally sits by, beside that lake in 30 AD or whatever. That's Yahweh in the flesh speaking to his people and seeing the vast majority of him of them reject him. So once more, if you look at 13, hopefully this will all be crystal clear now. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, again, fattened or thickened or calloused. And with their ears, they can barely hear. That's the heaviness of the ears we heard in Isaiah's text. And their eyes, they have closed. Now, that's a key distinction between Isaiah and the way he's using it and our Lord and the way he's using it. Um, In Isaiah, the language is... Uh, make the heart of this people dull, blind their eyes. But look at how Jesus has changed it. Their eyes, they have closed. 
So there's two different historical circumstances here, and our Lord's taking uh, the words of Isaiah and applying them to his own historical setting and circumstance. So he, his complaint is that this people, his people, have closed their eyes to who he is. Continuing on, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, what Jesus has just done with these words, too, is formed a chiasm. And uh, if you pick up it, so, so the sort of statement, uh, the thesis, if you will, would be, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Okay. Um, and that will, that will recur in verse 16. So compare, uh, compare that phrase, that bit we just said of 14. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Now look at 16. But blessed are your eyes, he says to his disciples, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So do you see how it goes? Hear, see, see, hear. Okay. And then what we're going to do is we're just going to keep narrowing down. Okay. Uh, Gordon, you have a, you have a comment? Or question? Uh, yeah, just going back to 15, um, where it talks about um, lest they should uh, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and uh, I would heal them. Um, as you go through the Gospels, a number of most of the healings that Christ does, um, a lot of them are based on um the faith of the person being healed not all the time sometimes he just heals people you know like like the 10 lepers and only the one comes back um but uh to me that ties in here because those people would be seeing and hearing and understanding more than the general population mhm mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not like Jesus is just saying, hey, I'm the son of God, trust me. He's moseying around and healing people and casting out demons and doing things that only God could do. And even if they don't believe, I mean, this is the this is the Christological conundrum. So why Jesus says, if you don't believe in me on account of my words, at least believe on account of the deeds. Because if they if they want to say that Christ is not the son of God, they still have to reckon with why the heck then is God confirming what he says by opening the eyes of the blind and unstopping the ears of the deaf and raise and raising the dead? These are things only God can do. So if he's just a prophet, which is their claim, why is God doing these things in order to substantiate his, his ministry? So that's the conundrum and the catch. Obviously, what he's saying is true. He is the Son of God, otherwise God would not be doing these things in and through him, right? So I think your point is well taken, Gordon, that these are people who have seen Jesus do all of these things that only God can do, and they're still rejecting him and rejecting his word. And in that, they're utterly hypocritical. Okay, so we're looking at this this chiastic structure, this uh, parallelism that ends up folding into the middle central point. Okay, so again, in 14, you see, you will indeed hear, 
you will indeed see, okay, but you're not going to understand, you're not going to perceive. And that's contrast with verse 16, where he speaks to the disciples, plural, blessed are your eyes and your ears, for they see and they hear. Okay, now if we look at 15, we're going to see 15 similarly fold in on itself. It starts with, for this people's heart has grown dull. And if you drop down one, two, three, four, five lines, you get another reference to the heart. For this people's heart has grown dull, and then down here, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Okay, and as we as we continue to fold this in, then 15, the second line, as it's in your scriptures, if you have a study Bible at least, and with their ears, they can barely hear. Okay, parallels with, and with their ears, two lines down, the third line. Okay, and then finally we get to, and their eyes, they have closed, and the next line, lest they should see with their eyes. Okay, so the center of the chiasm is eyes and eyes, then ears and ears, then heart and heart, then see and see, then hear and hear. You see that parallel, you see that structure? I mean, it's kind of parallelism. That's the chiastic structure. It's a way of uh, and it's a beautiful art form and literary art form. But then what it also does is it centers your attention on the central piece, which happens to be, and their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes. In other words, in Jesus' usage of Isaiah, it's different. He says that the prophecy is fulfilled, only here's the difference. Their eyes, they have closed. In Isaiah, strictly speaking, it's God's judgment that he's sending Isaiah out to close eyes, to make blind, to blind the eyes. But now Jesus, he sends to open eyes, but men will not have it. They are closing their eyes. So then you can see why it is that the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. Because he's willfully closing his eyes. He's willfully not hearing. He's willfully not understanding. So would this be what you would say, the sin leading to death? This this, this 15? I don't know. That causes a car crash in my mind because when... um, when John's talking about the sin leading to death, his context is just so wildly different. I'd have to actually like think about that, try to extract the point and try to compare it. And I, that might, might be too much effort for me tonight. Uh, yeah. But what they are doing is hardening their hearts, callousing their hearts, turning away from them. Of course, this is uh, why Jesus weeps when he's on his way into Jerusalem, um, because these people know not what will make for their peace. How I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. And that's the image of the mother hen with her chicks or the father with his children. That would be the parallel, you know, familial, but you've rejected that. I mean, this is, this is the, the cry. I mean, it's really a, an incredible cry because it's the cry of God all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. So what more could I do for you, oh, my people? 
and, and over and over in like countless different ways, that's the heart of God crying out after his people who will not have him by and large, with the exception of a remnant. And unfortunately, that somewhat parallels in the New Testament age as well. There's continuity with that disappointing theme. And there's also some discontinuity because the gospel does go forth in a way that it did not prior. Pastor, before, yeah. the gospel, before the New Testament, was there any need of grace in the Old Testament for the people who were um, Gentile? Like, was there, were they even judged? Was there any grace here? Yeah, well, the word of the word of God does go forth, and that's evident in any number of Old Testament texts, that, that the word of the Lord goes forth and... Um, so I don't know how to answer this question without being uh, overly in-depth and spending the rest of the class answering it, because it is a good question. But so just I'll try to briefly sketch it as quick as I can. Okay, you have Adam and Eve. They've got the promise of the Messiah. They're telling all their progeny about the promise of the Messiah. Their progeny willfully rejected. I mean, Adam is Adam is alive like some shocking amount of time, like right up until the ark. I mean, it's like a couple, it's like a few hundred years. I can't remember off the top of my head where it is. Adam's around that entire time, a few hundred years pass, and then there's the ark. I mean, Adam's like, hello, you're all my family. I saw God. This is what he said. And there's just such great apostasy. Okay. So there's God, I mean, over the whole face of the earth proclaiming Christianity. Um humanity rejects that he starts over with noah noah is a preacher of righteousness no one knows and understands that the seed is coming and he preaches and proclaims that you have a reset the whole world again so to speak is christian but in short order noah's sons turn away from christianity and turn away from that they still have the myth they have the anti-myths they they create the opposite their own stories twisting of the truth and so on but again the frame is that the world is there. And then, and then what does God do within that frame? Is he grabs a pagan, the son of an idol maker, Abraham, and promises the Messiah through him. But even then, as, as Abraham's trotting around, he's trotting around in a pagan land. And he's interacting with pagans the whole way through. It's not until you have the promised land that the people is established and out. I mean, where are the people before that? They're in pagan Egypt. Egypt, who's reaching the, the corners of the known world with its economy and and military and everything else. So again, not, none of this is done in, in secret. None of this is cordoned off. It's all part of a bigger picture. When the people go into the promised land, uh, they disobey God and leave all the pagans there. Well, the pagans are learning who Yahweh is and spreading around. And from time to time, you even find pagans that believe in him or are quickly converted to him, or at least sympathetic to Yahweh in a syncretistic kind of way. To some extent, via circumcision, yes. If you were willing to be circumcised in, you could be brought in. Mm -hmm. Now, that's under the Mosaic Covenant in specific. That's where that starts to be laid out. An outsider, a foreigner, a sojourner can be circumcised and brought into the faith. So that would be roughly parallel to baptism. Now, it's just, it's, I mean, it doesn't have the success that it has after the resurrection of Jesus. That's true. I mean, it's 100% true. 
But the idea that this was somehow like done in a corner is is a false read of history. When we understand history, like the gospel's there and the teaching is there and the, the word of Yahweh is there and it's spread out all over the place. And you can think of, I mean, so after Naaman is healed and he wants to bring dirt back, um, I mean, okay, this has to do with their beliefs about God and you have to have the dirt of that God to be able to access that God and all that. But he does this whole thing. How many other people hear about this God who healed? You see, so that I mean, it spreads from the whole government of this at the Syrians all, all the way down. You see, so um, the same the same is true when the peoples of the north are conquered and many of them intermarry. That's the beginning of the Samaritans, but that's um, you've got the faith of Yahweh being imbibed by the by the nation that crushed them. And then the Babylonians are the same way. They suck up all of Judah in there. They've got Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and who knows how many others. And the God of Daniel becomes widely known uh, within Babylon. And this in all likelihood is where the wise men show up. And they're probably not just like three guys, the only three guys in a nation who have ever heard of Yahweh or ever heard of the coming of Christ. They're probably there probably is more than three, and they're probably representative of a large minority, but large uh, portion of people who remember Daniel's God and remember the prophecy of a Savior who's going to come and rule over all nations. So um, we can we can get a tendency to view things too narrowly when we look at the Old Testament. It's it's broad, big scope, but then that all the nations would be systemically welcomed in is a shock. And that's, that's a shock where um, in many respects, this is the mystery of which Paul speaks in uh, Ephesians. He does it out everywhere, but in Ephesians in particular, uh, is it Ephesians in particular? Yeah, I think it is. Um, he's got this whole uh, that the Gentiles have been brought in in mass is shocking. So that's, um, I, I mean, again, it's, I'm glad you brought that up, period, but especially in this context, because we can see that in the first lands, the historical lands of Jesus speaking by the side of the lake, he's not talking to all nations per se. He's talking as Yahweh to his people. Thus, the disciples are those who receive him and his own people receive him not by and large. Um, that's the them here in this text who have closed their eyes. And thus, even though they see him, their eyes, they close their eyes and they can't see and they hear him, but they don't understand, etc. Pastor, um, you're struggling with all this, trying to put it together in a, in a form, but, uh, but I'm just going to ramble here a little bit. Mm -hmm. So is God about hardening the hearts in both the Old Testament and the New Testament? In the New Testament, he's doing it through parables. And in the Old Testament, uh, he did it through the commissioning of uh, Isaiah. And he did it through, uh, through Pharaoh as an individual. Mm -hmm. He already saw Yeah, there's a, there's a punitive aspect. So God is uh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he preaches his word very plainly. And he shows who he is in many and various miracles right before them. When people reject that, yeah, you're on a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God's not stupid. They're not stupid. It's you know, it's just very clear. And so, when they reject Him, then there's a punitive element of like, okay, they've chosen to close their eyes, go blind them. Yeah, 
It, no. Is that Hebrews six then? You know, the uh, basically you you uh, there's no coming back into the. Uh, I, I think that's that verse. Yeah, I mean, similar similar to to Chris's comment, it's a little bit of a traffic jam in my mind just because the the occasion is so different. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as a general principle, right. Um, that when one, when one refuses to hear the plain gospel and have the miracles of God set before them and they refuse to believe that, then God says, uh, God rejects them. It's fine. Have it your way. Yeah. And uh, that's a terrifying kind of thing. And it might lead us to say, well, why some and not others and that kind of thing. And it's just, I mean, that is truly a mystery and it's within, I mean, it's where God should be feared. That's that's really what it is. And so the parables are the New Testament format, the forum in which this is this bifurcation or whatever is is you know. Yeah. To those that have, much more will be given. Right. Hear, see, etc. Those who don't, it's taken away. Whatever little you had, or you were. Mm-hmm. So with so with the parables. Uh, there's to oversimplify just a bit. There's a twofold way in which, okay. So this goes back. This goes back to um, what Jesus does more than any other uh, preacher or teacher in all the scriptures is with one word he does law and gospel. So with one parable he's simultaneously blinding and condemning, and with a with that very same parable, not changing any words at all, he is creating faith and sustaining faith and deepening and broadening faith. With the, with the same word, okay? So um, Jesus does law and gospel in one, in a way that only Jesus can do. It's amazing. It's, it's just absolutely incredible. All right. Now, as he's doing this, the way in which the judgment of the parables works can be brought down into two a twofold aspect. In the first place, sometimes they have no clue what he's even talking about. Birds, trees, what is this? I don't know, okay? And that's that's punitive, Right? So they, they don't get it. But at other times, there's, there's, um, they do get it. Remember the vineyard, the parable of the vineyard, and they, they discerned that he was speaking about them. <laughs> okay. And so they get it, and they get that they're the bad guys. And so what do they do? Exactly what the bad guys in the parable just did, right? They want to kill him. They want to kill the son. All right. So that's the second sense. So in the first sense, it's punitive because they're blinded to the meaning. In the second sense, when they do get the meaning, they realize it's against them. And in their own spiritual blindness, they end up playing the part. So that's the, to oversimplify a bit, that's a twofold way in which those words condemn. Meanwhile, the disciples are sitting there hearing those same words. And being strengthened, encouraged, brought to face, seeing the grace and mercy of God, deepening their understanding of him, etc. In the first meeting on the parables, you said uh, the book of John may only have one parable, the good shepherd. Right. Yet you said the whole book might be considered a parable. But could you also say maybe the whole Bible is a parable because you have people who don't, mm-hmm. understand, you know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it, it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a leveling yeah, like I see exactly what you're saying. I think it's right. I think what's true of parables is, in specific, is true in a general way of the entire revelation of God. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
I think that's a good point. And ears. I like Revelation itself. That book is loaded with those verses. If you have eyes and ears here, that mm -hmm. is for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, this is going to be a mystery or a secret or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm exactly right. Exactly right. Has the word everybody had the same opportunity to have the means to respond? God's business. Yeah, it's that question. That particular question is way above my pay grade because God hasn't told me, uh, and so I don't know. Is the is the easiest answer, um, and it's not given to me to care, right? So I don't know if you remember a week or two ago where we talked about uh, the poisoned question. So so that can be, and I'm not accusing you of this, but that can be turned into a kind of poisoned question of, uh, hey, does everybody get exactly an equal shot at it? Well, one way, to, one way to go after that question a little bit is, what on earth would that even look like? We're all born into different circumstances. And again, you can see that that's above all of our pay grade. Why does, now we're not just like, why does one person come to salvation and another not? But why is one born into one time and place and family and cultural set of circumstances and another and entirely different. And how is that fair? And what are their opportunities in life, let alone uh, eternal life? Way, 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 way above our pay grade. So I think, I think that that's the proper way is when we have those questions come to mind, kind of identify them as like, how would I even begin to answer that? Um, if, if they didn't, we, and again, notice the self-contradiction. We can't even say what it would look like to have an equal shot. Make sure that the, the playing field's entirely level. Um, so we can't even define that. We should, we should stop there. But if we were going to just go ahead and transgress that and say, okay, um, if God didn't give everyone an equal shot, again, whatever that might look like, would he be unjust? Who's going to determine that God is unjust? And where are you if you're weighing if God is just or not? Yeah. You're on some fictitious yeah, judgment seat wearing a black garment, and God's in the dock. <laughs> to borrow from C.S. Lewis, God's the one on trial, and you are judge, jury, and oh, oh isn't that what the cross was all about? Yeah. When but, humanity did, in fact, put God in the dock and judge him and say, you are unfair, unjust, you deserve to have. Yeah. And there's, the, there's the, then the essence of where that question ultimately leads you uh, to the crucifixion of Christ. So, yeah, that's what I mean by a poison question. If you follow it long enough, you're going to be, and you just keep following, keep following it, pretty soon you're going to find a hammer in one hand and a nail in the other. And that's what you're going to be doing. Yeah. But in Scripture, though, it talks a lot of God's mercy withholding things from people so that even though they're, they're in sin, it's not, it's not a greater sin, meaning, hey, I'm, I'm purposely blinding you. That's what he says, I know, in, with Pharaoh. He's purposely going to say, I don't want to go so far that you can't you're not going to the deeper part of hell, you know. And that's the same thing with everything. You know, when he talked about the people coming into the promised land, he said, their sins have not come to fulfillment. He's saying, hey, 
They, they, a certain amount of sin up here, and there's certain sins down here. I want you up at this mount. So when judgment does come, you're not going down here. You're going up to here. You're still going to hell. But this part, is that's the way he seems like he's saying. He's constantly saying, hey, he's even merciful when we're a rebel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so I I don't know. Maybe I could maybe I could just pull back a little bit and summarize that judgment always begins with the house of the Lord, and that's what we see here is the people to whom He came, who were supposed to know Him, who had the scriptures, who had the means of grace, who had all these things, rejected Him and knew Him not. So judgment begins there, and then based on that, and this is the latter chapters of Romans, Paul sees this miracle that because the Jews rejected, it forced out. This is the diaspora. It forced out the apostles into the world and broadened the Gentile mission and brought us in. And Paul's way of seeing this is he hopes that our being brought in makes the Jews jealous <laughs> and that they'll acquiesce and come in as well. So it's always, God's vision is always big tent. It's the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. His What God has done in Christ is so universal that every single human being will rise in their bodies on the last day. So uh, far be it from us to think of God as somehow being stingy or unjust or unfair. Um, how he sorts that out with particular individuals, he's God, I'm not. That's his, that's his business. Um, if, he punishes, if he punishes people, who on earth do I think I am to say, that's not just. Don't we all deserve it? Anyway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, that's another way to do it. But but again, I'm I. So this is what Luther said. Maybe this would be a fair way to go. Well, we're at seven thirty-one. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll have to we'll have to end it there. Um, so you 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 want to stay out of the position of defending God. Because when you're defending God, you've already conceded too much. You've already conceded that the accuser of God, even if it's some part of your own mind, has standing. So when you find yourself doing theodicy, defense of God, you can already sort of catch yourself and go, I've conceded something I shouldn't have. God, I've already conceded that God needs a defendant, me, and that he's in the dock being accused. Okay. So if you find yourself in a position where you're trying to defend God, like, Oh, I'm sure he gives everybody a shot or it's all going to be fair. Or maybe he uh, gives them another shot. At, you know, as soon as they die or something, you're already playing defense attorney. Okay. So you don't want to do that. That's the first thing It's God's God's God can handle himself. He doesn't need us defending him. Isn't that the whole thing of Joe? Yeah. Yeah. Largely, largely it is. And then, um, you know, just one final comment on that. But Luther says that um, these kinds of questions can profit us if we realize uh, that they'll only lead us to the deus absconditus, the hidden God. That is, if you analyze God on the basis of human reason, not on the basis of his word and revelation, you're going to end up seeing God as an unjust monster. And that, that, and Luther's point is that that's by design because God refuses to be apprehended apart from Christ, apart from his word. So if you depart from his word of the speculations, then you're going to find God monstrous. 
and unfair and unjust. You're either going to be, you're either going to then be find your punishment because you've departed from Christ and gone into this other way, um, or you're going to be driven back to Christ. But that's that's what's alarming about leaving God revealed in Christ and God revealed in his scriptures is you will find a God who is indistinguishable from the devil. That's precisely the point. A monstrous God. A God who um and that's and that's really then this is where like I don't have to do any work here. Uh that's what the atheists point out. Or people who apostatize, who really know theology and apostatize, that's what they point out. Um that uh, God doesn't give every evidently doesn't give everyone a fair shake and might very well damn people uh, apart from anything they can do that kind of thing. Okay. So again, God appears to be uh, monstrous apart from Christ and apart from how he reveals himself in the scriptures. And again, Luther's point is that that's by design to drive us back there. Okay. Well, I've, I've already uh, taken us four minutes over. So um, even though we could, we could go on for hours, we, we better pause there. Um, so people can go their homeward ways. Uh, next week, then, we'll we'll just do kind of a quick recap of this, and we'll carry on through Matthew 13. Um, and we're going to especially spend time on the parable of the weeds or the tares, the zazania that end up looking like wheat. And we'll hit a couple of other smaller uh, parables along the way, and um, somewhere in the tune of four or five uh, that'll be new to us. And uh, then we'll flesh out what Matthew gives us via our Lord's words in regard to how we understand the parables. Okay, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.